Today our Bible reading will be Hebrews chapter 4 verse 14 to chapter 5 verse 10. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. We do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Every high priest is selected from, from among the people and is appointed to represent the people in matters related to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and are going astray, since he himself is subject to weakness. This is why he has to offer sacrifices for his own sins, as well as for the sins of the people. And no one takes this honour on himself, but he receives it when called by God, just as Aaron was. In the same way, Christ did not take on himself the glory of becoming a high priest, but God said to him, You are my son, today I have become your father. And he says in another place, You are a priest forever, in the order of Melchizedek. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Son though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered and, once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him and was designated by God to be high priest in the order of Melchizedek. Good morning, I'm Colin, I'm the pastor. Thanks for being with us. Well, have you ever been in one of those situations where you really need the help of an authority figure, but you're just too afraid to ask? I remember when I was at primary school, every Friday morning, we went to Withington Baths. They were cold, mouldy, Edwardian era swimming baths. And we went there for swimming lessons. Mr. Rogers was a swimming instructor, he had this big booming voice and as far as I could tell his swimming instruction philosophy was to be just incredulous that these eight-year-olds couldn't swim already um, but a, a quick dunk in the deep end that soon sort us out. I mean it was probably lovely but at the time I was terrified of him. Anyway one week as we came to get changed I couldn't untie the, the string tie on my action man swimming trunks my bathers it was absolutely knotted tight. It was never coming in done. And I couldn't pull me swimmers down without undoing the string. But I was just too scared to approach Mr. Rogers for help. So instead, I put my uniform on over the top of my damp, soggy bathers. And I had to spend the rest of that winter's day with those soggy, wet, damp bathers chaffing. Well, what about approaching God? When you're tempted to give up on him, when you're tempted to sin against him, do you turn to him for help? Or do you try and work it out some other way? 
And if you don't turn to God in the first instance, why not? Well, today we're looking at how Jesus is our great high priest and how that means we can approach God's throne of grace with confidence. So to catch up, the author of the Hebrews of he, this letter to the Hebrews has been leading us through the Old Testament to show us how Jesus is better than anything or anyone else you might put your trust in. And he's been doing that to encourage his audience of Christians with a Jewish background and to warn them not to make the same mistakes as their, as their ancestors. The mistakes of forgetting all that God has done for them and falling into unbelief. So that's the pattern of this letter. Be encouraged by how much better Jesus is so that you don't give up on him and miss out on the rest with God that he brings. In this passage the encouragement is how Jesus is a better high priest. So uh, chapter 4 verse 14. Therefore since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. So here's your outline for this talk. We'll see in a moment how Jesus is fully sympathetic and then how he's fully qualified. But first, you and I aren't first century Jews, so we better take a moment to understand what the original audience would have had in mind when they heard that sort of title, High Priest. So our first point then is a great high what? Israel's situation in the wilderness and later on in the promised land was that God was with them. He was present with them in a particular, specific, special, tangible way in their most holy place of their, first of all, their meeting tent, a special reserved area, first of their meeting tent that they carried around with them in the wilderness uh, and later in the temple, the promised land, special reserved area. And lots of the laws that God gave them was to deal with the fact that this per God who is perfect and holy, who can tolerate no sin, no impurity, to deal with how he could dwell so directly amongst sinful humanity. So God set things up so that a particular people would be priests to represent the people before God by approaching him very carefully in very specific God-ordained ways. Uh, they bring the sacrifices people had made before God. And there was a hierarchy. And the high priest had the most important job of the year. On the Day of Atonement, he would sacrifice a goat for the sins of Israel and then ceremonially place the sins of the people on another goat, a scapegoat, which was sent out into the wilderness. So you can read the detail in Leviticus 16. And the high priest, would, in this way, would restore God's people into right relationship with God once a year. So chapter nine of Hebrews is gonna go into more detail of a compare and contrast with that. For now though, let's look at how Jesus is the better high priest. That's what today's about. So first, Jesus is fully sympathetic. He's fully sympathetic. See, Jesus' experience of life as a real fully human man means that he knows what it's like for us. Verse, chapter 4 verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who was unable to empathise with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted 
in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. I think Christians, we're, we're so keen not to deny that Jesus was fully God, that sometimes we feel a bit awkward about his humanity. But the thrust of that verse we just read is that when it comes to being tempted to sin or tempted to abandon God and his plans, Jesus fully knows what it's like for us. Now, we don't want to take this too far. You know, we'll celebrate at Christmas how Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit. So he isn't born with a sinful nature. So that means he's not morally capable of sin in that being fully God, being of the same will as the Father and the Spirit, Jesus never truly, wants, truly never wants to sin. And so he never sets a sin in motion. But he is, like you and I, capable of making choices. He has a will. And of course, Jesus never knew specific temptations, the same specific temptations we do, like, you know, he didn't have the internet. No one cut him up or tailgated him in his car. He didn't become elderly. He wasn't married. He wasn't a parent. But we can take the author at his word that Jesus knew every type of temptation that we do. Jesus was born with a human body and all its frailties. He got tired and hungry and presumably other physical challenge, had other physical challenges that we all face. In fact, Jesus would have suffered temptation more because he never gave in to it. See, we only tend to experience like the prologue or maybe the first half at most of our temptation because then we give in to it. And then we end up living with the sin instead of the temptation. Well, Jesus never gave in to any temptation. He saw all of them out to their bitter end. Last week we saw that the Jewish audience of this letter to the Hebrews, were warned, don't be like your ancestors who missed out on the promised land, that kind of rest, because they gave up on God's promises. Well, the point here is that Jesus knows more than anyone how hard it is to persevere in faith, to hang in there through suffering in order to reach future reward, future promises, when everything that's going on around you tells you you should just give up. Jesus knows what that's like. Later in today's passage, in, in chapter 5, verse 7, the author recalls, During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. The language used here mean, means the example that the author's probably got in mind is Jesus' prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's faced with going through his betrayal, abandonment, suffering and crucifixion. So Jesus knows what it feels like to be absolutely desperate, to be absolutely at the end of your rope. Jesus knows what that feels like, and yet he still submitted to God's will. And his prayer was heard in that God's will was done through his obedience. So whatever the differences between us and Jesus, the author's point here is our similarities. What we can definitely take away is that when we're tempted to sin or to give up, Jesus knows exactly what that is like, and he sympathises with us. He gets it. You don't have to pretend to be okay with Jesus. You don't have to put on a brave face. He'll know that you're bluffing. 
we get that with old friends, don't we? I think we understand this, especially people you've been through, I don't know, shared trauma with. So when I worked as a radiographer back in the UK, two of my colleagues, um, they trained with me in the same year at uni. And because we had that greater level of shared experience, we knew where each other were coming from. And so I would trust those colleagues much more, look out for them more, and more readily be pulled up by them when I was making an idiot of myself. Because we could more readily empathise with each other. The good news is though, although Jesus can empathise with us, he didn't behave like us. At the end of verse, chapter 4 verse 15, and yet he did not sin. So that means Jesus not only fully gets what it's like for us, he's also fully qualified, qualified to deal with the consequences of us giving into temptation. Our next section, fully qualified. In chapter 5, verses 1 to 10, the author gives us a nice orderly argument to show us how Jesus is a, a better high priest who is fully qualified to bring us into right relationship with God. So he compares and contrasts the calling, the qualities and the function of ordinary high priests in Jesus. Their calling, qualities and function. Um, if you like structures and you know you enjoyed English at school, here's like the structure of the passage goes like this. You've got the function of priests, verse 1, quality of priests, calling of priests, and then it goes in reverse order. The calling of Jesus, the qualities of Jesus, and the function of Jesus as our high priest. So we'll start in the middle there, looking at those three aspects, calling, qualities, and function. First, calling. So chapter 5, verse 1, and in verse 4, a high priest doesn't put himself forward. God calls them through the people choosing them. But Jesus, on the other hand, chapter 5, verse 5, was called by God directly. And the author's quoting Psalm 2, verse 7 here again. He's not saying Jesus didn't used to be the son, but now he is. Rather, he's saying Jesus has full, fulfilled all his duties that he's called to as God the son. So Jesus is called by God directly, and verse 6, he's called to a different kind of priesthood. Now, we won't get into Melchizedek now, um, find out all about him in chapter 7. But for now, all I need to say is that Jesus is called to a bigger, fuller, better priesthood, different priesthood than the ordinary high priests. So Jesus' calling is better, as are his high priestly qualities. His calling is better, his qualities are better. So verse 2 and 3, a high priest an ordinary high priest can deal gently and sympathetically with people because he's also a sinner. Indeed, the high priest had to offer the sacrifice of a bull before his own sins on day of atonement before he could get on with the rest of it. Jesus, on the other hand, did not sin. So his sacrifice is entirely directed to our benefit. As we've seen, Jesus can also deal gently and sympathetically with us, understanding what it's like to be tempted to give up on God or to be tempted to sin. But his reverent submission was perfect. His will was always lined up perfectly with God the Father. Verse 8. Looking at verse 8 there, uh, 
learned obedience. That doesn't mean Jesus was disobedient and then he had to learn his lesson to become God the Son. No, it means that as God the Son already, he learned how it felt, what it was like to go through the consequences of his obedience, the extreme suffering of the cross, the suffering needed to put us right with God. Jesus didn't give up. He didn't turn away. He learned obedience. So calling qualities and thirdly, function of high priests. So the usual high priests had limited access to God. Only the high priest could go into the most holy place of the tabernacle or the temple. And even then, only once a year. In Jesus, so chapter 4, 14, we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven itself, who is seated alongside God the Father in the throne room of all, all reality. The function of ordinary high priests was, chapter 5, verse 1, to represent the people in matters related to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. Now, the author of Hebrews will flesh this out uh, more fully later. But their sacrifices foreshadowed, they pointed to, they were a sneak preview of what would actually deal with sin, for real. You see, the trouble with the Day of Atonement and putting God's people right with God, as reassuring as it was for them, the trouble with it was the day after the Day of Atonement. Sin and giving up on God will be back on the agenda straight away. I mean, I can imagine the high priest coming out of the tent after a hard day's atoning, stubbing his toe on a tent peg on the way out, swearing. Back to square one straight away. But the obedience of our high priest Jesus means the actual real work of making atonement for our sin is done. So he's not a foreshadow, he's not pointing to things like the priest. He himself is the sacrifice and his sacrifice of himself really does pay the debt and wipe clean the slate for anyone who trusts him with their life. So that's what verse 9 made perfect means. It doesn't mean Jesus was a bit dodgy and then came good. No, it means he completely finished the job, resisting temptation, fulfilling all his priestly requirements, being elevated as um, God's son and redeemer in heaven. Job finished. So the author's laid out for us that Jesus can fully sympathise with us and he's fully qualified to bring us into right relationship with God. And as throughout Hebrews, this reasoning from the scriptures has with it an exhortation uh, that, you know, the kind of, the, so what? What are you going to do with this information bit? Well, we are to hold firmly and approach confidently. Our final heading, hold firmly and approach confidently. Chapter 4, verse 14 again. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. Hold firmly to our faith in Jesus. Who Jesus is and what he has done, his obedience and his perseverance, they are the source of our eternal salvation. You know, John 3.16, for God so loved the world. In this way, in Jesus, God so loved the world. 
Jesus is who we need, not anything or anyone else. In my old job as a clinical tutor, training and assessing radiography students back in the UK, one of the first things I had to do on my first day in that job, it was really sad, I had to finally fail a student. He'd had loads of chances, but when we watched him trying to x-ray people, he just still couldn't do it safely. So I told him that he'd finally failed, and this was the end of the road, and it, he argued, but Colin, I feel more confident. I said, with the greatest respect, you shouldn't feel more confident. You haven't got any better at this. If we aren't holding on in faith to Jesus for our standing before God, we shouldn't be confident about standing before him. Because only Jesus is qualified to be our high priest. Only Jesus is qualified to bring us sinless before God. But if you're a believer watching this, I don't think overconfidence is usually our problem. No, it's usually lack of confidence, I think. Verse 16. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Approaching God's throne of grace with confidence. Does that describe what you do? Or do you act more like someone who's gate-crashed a VIP party and feel like they're about to be found out any minute, like with like, imposter syndrome? You see, I think usually we get it the wrong way around. See, the author's telling us Approach God's throne of grace to get mercy and to get help when we're struggling to be faithful. But what we tend to do is the other way around. So say you've sinned again, same sin that you usually get into, and you feel terrible about it. You can barely understand yourself. You, you even hate yourself a little bit. So like a kid who knows they're in trouble, we behave really well for a little while to sort of redress the balance until we feel good enough about ourselves to approach God again. But that's wrong. That's trying to be our own high priest. It's kind of saying, there's enough I can do so that there's now enough that is inherently good about me that on balance, God really ought to let me approach. But the gospel is that none of us are good enough to come anywhere near God, ever, under our own steam. But that God's throne is a throne of grace. And in Jesus, through Jesus' faithful obedience, our debt is paid. God's right and just opposition to our evil sin, his anger at that, is turned away and we're welcomed into his rest. So approach God's throne of grace with confidence for the mercy and the help that we need. To encourage you to do that, I thought I'd finish with a bit of John's Gospel. And what this prayer of Jesus gives us is a sneak peek into the kind of good word that Jesus is putting in for us that means we can approach God's throne of grace with confidence. 
So as you listen, just look out for the, the unity, the rest, the oneness with God that Jesus has won for us. That means we can be confident. So from John 17, my prayer is not for them alone, that's the disciples. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that's you and me, that all of them may be one Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me so that they may be brought to complete unity. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you love me before the creation of the world. We can approach God's throne of grace with confidence, not confidence in who we are and our performance, but confidence in Jesus as our High Priest who fully sympathises with us and is fully qualified to bring us before God in our sins paid for in right relationship with him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Jesus, our High Priest. Thank you that he knows, he really knows what it's like for us. Please help us to turn to him in the first instance for your grace and for your help in persevering in faith so we may be found when Jesus returns in your rest. Thank you that Jesus is fully qualified, that he's paid the price and he can present us before you perfect and spotless just like him. Amen.